0: Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's
1: 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Hey, Buck. Welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here with me as always. Thank you so much for joining. I've got a lot to talk to you about today. Uh, We have some follow-up to the investigation into what happened, the mass shooting, horrific mass shooting in Las Vegas. Uh, more details on that story and still no clear motive. Um, I think we're getting closer to giving it a some name. I mean, the, the motive might be a, a construct, something we haven't really heard much of before. It might be you know psychopathic malignant narcissism nihilism uh, mass murder psychological breakdown i mean you know it's not it's not going to be i think at any point that uh cut and dry we're not going to be able to say much other than this was an evil and and deranged individual the specifics of his derangement and and his In his uh, sick mind, uh, the twisted rationale for what he was doing, we may never have real answers on this. I I think we should uh, prepare ourselves as a country psychologically for that possibility that it it may be the case that we have some idea, but we never truly know. I was short of him leaving behind a, uh, a suicide note explaining what the what the the purpose of this vicious mass murder was Sure, he he's he is a psychopath and a mass murderer, but beyond that, right now we still don't have much clarity, and we will have to see uh, if that changes in the days ahead. Um, there were some uh, additional points that I wanted to get to about the uh, about what happened in in those minutes uh, that went by with the actual uh, the actual event itself we have we have more details because i was wondering what happened uh, that delayed the first uh, the well it's first responders but swat teams from getting there they said it was about nine minutes of, of actual shooting nine minutes of an actual attack and then 70 minutes to uh, breach the door and go after steven paddock Why was there this delay? I have some details and additional information on that. Um, And we have Trump visiting Las Vegas and and a whole bunch of other stories that we will get into throughout uh, throughout the show today. And and the gun control debate, because we are in the midst of it right now. The shortened version of where I am on this is. the, The gun control advocates, the gun control zealots have on the merits lost the lost the debate they can they can keep bringing it up we can keep returning to the same issues but you're starting to see some on the left who look at the numbers and the reality and the truth of the gun control reflexive knee jerk response you get after one of these terrible mass shooting incidents uh, there are some on the left who're saying you know what It really isn't about one side cares about saving life and the other doesn't. Right. Democrats, good Republicans, bad. It's not about that. It's about would this work or not? And is it something that would not work to prevent loss of life? But is an infringement on a constitutionally protected right? And if the answers to those questions are what they seem to be, maybe we need to rethink the way this debate keeps happening. So that gun control discussion we will get into it uh, coming up in just that'll be later on this hour but first the, the police uh, released some additional body cam footage now this is disturbing stuff just because you it brings you into those moments this is body camera footage from police officers who were there um, outside the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino on the Las Vegas strip in those terrible uh, minutes when the, the gunman had had opened up his spree of murder um, this is what it, it sounded like and I, I think it's, it's worth us hearing but be prepared I mean, this, is, this is what if you had been there you would have heard something uh, if you had been a law enforcement officer on the scene this is what the sounds in those moments were like
0: get down get down go that way Get out of here. There's gunshots coming from over there. Go that way. Go that way. There's gunshots right here. Go that way, go that way, go that
2: way. It's from Natalie Bay. I can see the room. Everybody get down, get down, get down, get
0: down. Let's get down, get down, get down. So law
1: enforcement saving saving lives in the midst of all of that chaos and and carnage. Uh, Those awful minutes of of uh, gunfire from this elevated position, this this deranged gunman trying to just kill as many innocent people as possible, Um, unthinkable, uh, absolutely beyond disgraceful, truly, truly evil. Uh, but amidst all that evil, you did have the heroism of first responders, law enforcement, SWAT team, and just everyday Americans and, and uh, whoever was at the scene, stepping up to help their fellow human beings. Uh, President Trump, when in Vegas today, addressed that specifically. He went there to speak about the ongoing investigation and just to to comfort the American people, given the the trauma the national trauma that is suffered by uh, all of us when we watch and, and hear uh, about so much suffering of of uh, the people that were caught up in this in Las Vegas. Here's what President Trump had to say. Well, we'll get to it in a second. We, um, we have, yes, sorry, uh,
0: There's really a lot of stories that are great heroism. Absolutely. Tremendous number of stories. But what the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police did is... Uh, but I've always known you were good, right? Did you know that, John? I've always known you guys were good, but you really proved it.
1: Heroism of the uh, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police, to be sure, saved lives. And those who were on the ground doing what they could that day certainly also... Uh, saved lives now i was wondering and and las vegas uh, police or the, the sheriff in las vegas addressed this in a press conference last night something wasn't adding up why would we have nine minutes uh or sorry why would you have a 70 or 75 minute delay from the first shots to getting into that room in the mandalay bay and taking out this mass murderer who had stockpiled weapons and he had bump fire stocks and that may be the one, the one legislative change that comes out of all this is they may decide that bump fire stocks are uh, illegal. Fine. Um, but why was there such a delay? We got. I've been wondering about this because I think that there was not enough attention paid to some of the mistakes at the Pulse nightclub by law enforcement on the scene. Uh, and, I, and I know that no one likes to be Monday morning quarterbacking law enforcement in a life or death situation like that. But when you have an active shooter who is still shooting, as you did in the Pulse nightclub, and police on the scene not rushing in and actually engaging the shooter right away, that's, from a procedure standpoint, that is a problem. Uh, Here it seems that was not the case. You had a very clear explanation. And I I was waiting for this because I had been wondering, when are we going to talk about this? Because the response really matters. We're going to talk about saving lives and preventing this from this kind of thing from happening, or at least from so many casualties uh, m- uh, mounting in in a case like this in the future, you need to look at response times and what law enforcement did. And we got an explanation of that.
0: The first call came into our dispatch center at 10:08 p.m. about shots being fired. The suspect, I can tell you that we know now that he fired off and on for somewhere between nine and eleven minutes. We know that the suspect fired over a dozen or so volleys, and we know that the firing by the suspect ceased at 1019. So I want you to think about that. The first minute the police are aware of shots being fired at 10 o'clock, 1008, and it stops at 1019.
1: He then went on to say that the lag period, and this was reported in the news, uh, the, the 72, 72 minutes, I thought it was 75, 72 minutes it took for cops to arrive, um, that's not, in fact, that that's not accurate. They thought they were dealing with a, um, they thought they were dealing with a barricaded individual, but the, the firing had stopped. So he wasn't still firing when they were outside of his door. So the response time, he's saying here, was was quick and under the circumstances was Uh, was what we could expect right there's no such thing really as sufficient or good enough when there's loss of life like this right i mean that's those aren't the terms we think in it's just was this uh, meeting expectations under the circumstances because it's uh, the the chaos of that mass shooting just must have been overwhelming uh, at the time and and the psychological pressure that all those officers are uh, officers are under i know that you know, immediately you would be thinking, um, you'd be thinking, okay, do, are you're trying to find the the location where the shooters where the shooters actually engaging targets, but you also want to make sure that you're keeping the people on the ground safe, right? So you, you're caught between those two uh, competing notions right away, uh, and and I, I think that from what we're hearing and and seeing now. Law enforcement in Las Vegas uh, did a, a beyond an, an admirable, an admirable job. Um, the president, to try and uh, sp- try and bring us together and and, and unify the American people and, and help us in this period of healing, uh, spoke about how we need to love each other um, more. He, he tried to. Uh, uh, well, here, here's what the president said.
0: The example of those whose final act was to sacrifice themselves for those they loved should inspire all of us to show more love every day for the people who grace our lives.
1: Well said by the president uh, today. I think he did a very good job in Las Vegas with his speech, with the press conference, meeting with law enforcement We still have some unanswered questions. We don't have much more on the motive, and there continues to be the politicization over the gun control issue.
2: Have you, your experience of your own, and what you saw in Las Vegas, has it changed how you feel about any of that?
1: I think it's fortified it. Look at some of those bills. Those bills wouldn't have done anything to stop this. I mean, the gunmen actually cleared background checks. Uh, so to, to promote some kind of gun control, I think, is, is is the wrong way to approach this. And frankly, what I experienced was when there was a shooter, we had, luckily, we had Capitol Police there with their own guns. Every single day in America, regular citizens that just have a passionate belief in the Second Amendment, that have their own guns, use guns every single day to protect themselves against criminals. And those stories never get told or hardly ever get told. There you have Representative Steve Scalise, who narrowly uh, escaped death at the hands of a uh, deranged Bernie Sanders-supporting would-be mass assassin uh, who was taken out by Capitol Police, uh, thankfully. But the left has been for a long time trying to get as much uh, emotional mileage as possible off of putting either individuals who themselves have been uh, the victims of gun violence, or those who are the family members of those who were subject to gun violence, and they put them up to make policy arguments. And we're supposed to never respond to that, right? It's, oh, someone lost a relative to gun violence. You're not allowed to say what they're saying is wrong because that would be mean. This is what the left does. Now, Steve Scalise, you have somebody who personally suffered from gun violence, but he thinks about this in the holistic and realistic sense of, yeah, sure. Someone tried to someone tried to kill me, but the only reason I'm alive is because of good guys with guns. And the bad guy who was trying to take out Scalise as well as others on that baseball field in Virginia, uh, he was not going to be deterred by a sentencing enhancement for you know, if, uh, well, the things that they're talking about now, right? A bump fire stock, uh, even the the background checks and the mental health stuff. And this is just, people say this because they like to say it. Because it sounds like they maybe know what they're talking about. Well, I think we should have background checks. We already have background checks. And by the way, if somebody has no... Think about what's being requested here or being suggested. If an individual has no criminal history, never been committed by, uh, to a, a mental institution, has never been declared uh, you know, mentally unfit to deal with their own affairs or whatever the, whatever the specific legal language is in a court of law, What are you going to do beyond that to take away someone's rights? I mean, those are all that's already there in the law. So what do we do? That's how how do you have an even you know, it's, it's so interesting to me. They make so much fun of Trump. They made so much fun of Trump for extreme vetting, you know, extreme vetting of people who are not U.S. citizens who have no right to come to this country, despite what some judges say. Extreme vetting became a a punchline on the left. Meanwhile, after an incident of gun violence like this, the left is calling for exactly that, extreme vetting, without knowing what that vetting would be and without taking into account that there's already a lot of vetting in process. So I just think that the the, the hypocrisy here, the the policy hypocrisy that is uh, on display is... It's just tiresome. I, I get, I get tired. There, there are some areas of what's happening in our day to day lives that I just wish we could dig into more, more research, more conversation, more knowledge. That's really, I, I like to think that's the, the core of this show. I, I try to be as engaging and, and even entertaining as I can, but it's a knowledge based show, and there are so many areas. I have to be doing research all the time so that I have information or knowledge or background to share with all of you. And on guns, you know and I know what's already what's going on here. Right. We already have been through these debates in the past. Many of you are 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 much more familiar with with firearms and firearms law than I am. And I'm pretty familiar with it, but I know a lot of you are really familiar with it. And I, from the, the notes and the messages that I get, I mean, we've got a lot of legitimate firearms, not just enthusiasts, but experts that listen to this show. But here we are, because if we if we don't have the discussion, it feels like we just have to suffer in silence. Why? While a lot of misinformation is put out there, a lot of uh, a lot of anti Second Amendment propaganda is out there. And I just I have a uh, a deep seated hatred for falsehood, and when I see people in the news saying things that are untrue over and over, especially on this issue, and just making incredibly weak arguments and and arguing in bad faith, it bothers me. So at some level, this is it's almost a this is a, a catharsis for me. I mean, I, I get to actually. Say to all of you what I wish I could jump on the jump into the screen at MSNBC and and jump into the editorial boardroom of The New York Times and and just grab them and yell. What do you not get? Why are you so incompetent on this? Why can't you do the basic research? What is wrong with you? I know, you know, but they don't know. And they want to change our laws and change our rights, despite the fact that on this issue of gun control, they are still so ignorant
0: he's holding the line for america buck sexton is back get to do it again tonight i said what i had to say last night but i do want to say something to
1: these nuts who spent most of the day today on television and online attacking those of us who think we need to do something about the fact that 59 innocent people were killed they say it's
0: inappropriate to be talking about it because it's too soon well maybe it's too soon for you because deep down inside you know in your heart you know you bear some responsibility for the fact that almost anyone can get any weapon they want now you want to cover yourself until the storm of outrage passes you can go back to your dirty business as usual but it's not too soon for us because we're americans and last time i checked the first amendment is at least as important as the second amendment so we really talk about it. Shane-
1: yes there you have the I thought it was late-night comedian Jimmy Kimmel, but we're seeing more and more that he's just uh, Keith Olbermann with a beard. Uh, He goes on TV and makes incredibly uh, simplistic and dishonest political arguments in place of, well, in the case of Keith Olbermann doing journalism and in the case of Jimmy Kimmel being a late-night comedian. A few things from that clip specifically. He said that people who disagree with him on this gun control issue, quote, bear responsibility. They bear some responsibility for what happened in Las Vegas. Uh, What better evidence do, do you need? Do we have to have to see that for a lot of the celebrity elites out there? This is not and I keep saying this because I know I'm right. This is not about gun control. This is about political tribalism, and it's, we're the good people, Democrats, we care about dead children, the other ones don't. It's about my side good, your side bad. I'm smart and cool and kind, and they don't really care about kind that much, but I'm, I'm you know, uh, emotionally in touch with the problems of the world, and conservatives or Second Amendment defenders are evil and operate in bad faith. You know, I actually, I was on uh, last night, I, I went on HLN and there was a, a woman on the panel with me there. I was doing uh, my friend Essie Cup's show and there was a woman named Crystal Ball, never worked with her before, and this was all on air, so you can just go back if you want and see the exchange, but she kept trying to play this equivalency of, you know, everybody on the right says mean things about the left on guns and everybody on the left says mean things about the right on guns. Now, and that may, in fact, be a a more articulate and coherent summary of what she was saying than she herself said, but that was more or less the point. Uh, And what I had to say and what came out of the discussion is, no, it is only the pro-gun control side that assumes and states openly that the other side does not care about dead children. It is only the pro-gun control side that claims to be acting in good faith while the other side is evil. And th- this is a a trait of liberalism that's on display, not just on the issue of guns, but it's particularly uh, obvious and blatant on this issue because there are so many individuals out there with big platforms who have followings, who have a voice in this discussion, And they just don't know anything. They're just ignorant. A perfect example is actress Jessica Chastain, uh, best known, I think, for her role in Zero Dark Thirty. She's an actress, an overpaid, incredibly lucky Hollywood actress. And she tweets out, "'Welcome to America, where you'll wait six months for an X-ray, but hey, you can buy an AR-15 in five minutes flat.'" That's just not true on both ends. Not only is she wrong about guns, uh, she's wrong about waiting six months for an x-ray. If you need an x-ray, go to an ER. By law, they would have to do it. This isn't even a judgment call. Uh, There are x-ray centers in neighborhoods all across the country. You just go in and you wait for 30 minutes, they'll see. I mean, it's just so stupid. But on the issue of guns being stupid as long as you're pro-gun control is not considered to be a problem as long as you hold the pro-gun control position which brings me back to Jimmy Kimmel who's just digging in on this and I, I you know I would like to say that I could boycott Kimmel because of his politics but I've never thought he was funny I mean this is a guy who used to be the host of The Man Show, and and now, which which is fine. I know Adam Carolla, well, and The Man Show was actually a little tasteless, let's be honest. But, you know, Adam Carolla hosted that show, and uh, he, uh, I've only interacted with him once, and he's a good guy. But, you know, Kimmel is out there acting like we all need to listen to his opinions on this stuff, and if we don't, we're bad people. He also played this game of... You know uh, saying things that are just just flatly untrue. anyone can get any gun at any time that is that is either i mean it, it it's either he's being intentionally dishonest, so he's he's lying to his audience to play to their political prejudices or he is just wildly ignorant on the subject. No person can say that you can buy guns at any you know any person can buy any gun there are restrictions on, there are, first of all there are restrictions on automatic weapons there are restrictions on i mean i, I sit here and i, I want to start going through all of the regulations about guns that are already in existence. all of the gun control yes the gun control that already exists at the federal level at the state level in this country in fact there's so much gun control that in a sense the media gives itself a pass for not understanding the gun control laws that are already in existence because they're so complicated well doesn't that tell us something there is so much gun control already that the people advocating for more gun control don't even hold themselves to account for understanding the gun control that already exists And Jimmy Kimmel is a perfect, a perfect example of this. Uh, I mean, it's not even worth getting into anyone. No, people who are convicted of a felony can't have a gun. People uh, convicted of a domestic violence crime cannot own a gun. People that have been involuntarily committed to a psychiatric institution cannot own a gun. People that are addicted to or engaged in the trafficking of a controlled substance cannot buy a gun. I mean, you know, I can go down this list all day and then any gun that's obviously not true in fact in in new york where i live they say you can't have more than a 10 round magazine now and uh, that you can't have a folding stock it's just you know you can't have a gun that looks scary there's a tremendous amount of gun control that already exists if people like jimmy kimmel were serious about this and it wasn't just all for show which is what all this gun control stuff is from a vast majority of the people. It's, I'm a good person, I want gun control, I want to save lives, you don't. Well, what is that based in? It, first of all, assumes that there is no gun control already, which, as we've been discussing, there is a tremendous amount of gun control that already exists. We do not live in a society that is absolutist at all when it comes to the Second Amendment. In fact, there are more infringements already codified in law for the Second Amendment than there are for any other amendment you can think of, right? And yet, if you begin to talk about voter ID, uh, then then you're infringing upon the Constitution. The left loses their minds. If you talk about any prohibition on abortion, even you know, an abortion at eight months and, and 20 days of gestation for I know the term is fetus, the baby. Uh, That's a a, a terrible violation of constitutional rights. The Democrats are absolutists on abortion. Nothing else qualifies for them. Uh, This is just a a massive uh, bacchanal of virtue signaling from the left. That's what this really comes down to. And those who are honest about this uh, will, oh wait, before I go into that, I love how Kimmel at the end of his little speech also says, "You know, the First Amendment, man. No, no one is, <laughs> no one is saying that he's not allowed to say dumb things. He can say dumb things all day. It's just people like me and others are pointing out that he's saying dumb things. That is the fir- that's like the definition of the of what the First Amendment covers. No one's saying the government should silence him. That the First Amendment isn't a this. This is the excuse that." idiots make when they say dumb things you know the first amendment what is it no one's it's not a first amendment issue no one's saying that you can't say these dumb things Kimmel you can't write these dumb things Jessica Chastain I always thought she got particularly lucky by the way I don't really see a whole lot of ability in the acting field there but you know that's just my opinion man first amendment and then at the end, though, you know, these people clap for Kimmel and I know they're there and I'm not trying to put the audience down, although the Bill Maher audience I will put down because I, I really think that they're rooting for the destruction of America and are just they they revel in the dishonesty of that show and that host Maher and that panel. They love it. But, you know, the audience of the, the, the Tonight Show or the, whatever, the Today Show, the Tonight Show, Miss Molly knows pop culture. I'll ask her what the differences are. I guess one's during the day and one's at night. They're there to have a good time, and they're, they clap when they're told to clap, and I, I get that, but they're clapping for an idiot. Um, or at least somebody, I, you know, look, Kimmel, uh, he says some funny things. He's probably a nice guy, and I know he wouldn't say that. I mean, he has no idea who I am and would never care, uh, but I don't think that's something that he would offer to the other side, but that returns us to this notion of only the left and the, and the gun grabbers and the gun control advocates operate in good faith. Only they're good people. It can't be an honest disagreement on the other side. Uh, that's, that's how they approach this. And then they wonder why there's not more of, a, of an open dialogue about all of this. Uh, one more thing I wanted to get into here, um, and that is that in 538, which is a left-wing number-crunching site, they have smart people, though. It's Nate Silver's site. He's done some excellent forecasting. Uh, there, there is Maggie Korth Baker. And I recommend this piece to you. Uh, mass shootings are a bad way to understand gun violence. And she writes about how uh, at the end of the day, she crunched the numbers. And it just it doesn't gun control doesn't solve this problem doesn't work. There is no gun control solution. This is somebody writing for Five Thirty Eight. She, and here's how she closes the piece. If we focus on mass shootings as a means of understanding how to reduce the number of people killed by guns in this country, we're likely to implement laws that don't do what we want them to do and miss opportunities to make changes that really work. Gun violence isn't one problem. It's many. And it probably won't have a single solution either. This is a leftist. But she looked at the numbers. And the numbers don't lie. Everything that these people that are so high in money, so, so self-righteous, I mean, they're just bathing in how moral and wonderful they are. All the stuff they talk about when it comes to gun control wouldn't work. And then they wonder why we won't go along with it. They wonder why we don't think this is a good idea. So, you know, yeah, Kimmel, you have the right to be an idiot, and I have the right to say you're being an idiot. But it's more than just comedians and celebrities. It's our journalist class. It's our supposedly educated, erudite, um, very well-lettered and uh, talented authors and all the rest of it. They have thoughts on gun control as well. Why don't we delve into how stupid they are?
0: And we have the Second Amendment, which was designed to keep the federal government from taking away the right of each state to maintain its own militia.
1: Wrong, but go ahead, Keith.
0: But which has now been transformed into an excuse for why madmen of whatever heritage or political purpose cannot be stopped from carrying at least 10 long rifles into a hotel room in Las Vegas and setting up a sniper's nest and killing people, and why a group that enables such massacres, the National Rifle Association, is not branded for what it is a terrorist organization.
1: There you go. Keith Olbermann mentioned him before, so figured we could uh, actually hear what he has to say. The NRA is a terrorist organization. That's his contribution to this discussion. That's what somebody who was paid millions of dollars to be a news anchor on MSNBC, no less. And this is why all this stuff about how, oh, Trump and, you know, is he factually accurate on everything he says or not? when the media says all that stuff, we're like, you guys know that you know MSNBC pretends that it's a news organization, right? So we just don't really want to hear it. Uh, but you can expect idiocy from Keith Olbermann, and that's no surprise. But even some of the revered journalists who used to be considered big J journalists, like Thomas Friedman and Nicholas Kristof, uh, Nicholas Kristoff. Uh, I, I always remembered when he would he would go on CNN, and they would uh, listen to him as though he were uh, some kind of genius. I, I found that guy so wrong and so annoying and so sanctimonious. It was, it was hard to stomach, but they would clear... He wasn't on panels. It was always oh, Nicholas Kristof. Please tell us about this incredibly complicated issue. Well, people who like guns um, drink a lot of beer and have American flag tattoos and are... I mean, you know, they, they love this guy and he at least was willing to put his... Uh, put his words into action or put his words down on paper about doing something when it comes to gun control. He wrote a piece, sure enough, and he lays out a whole bunch, a whole series of what should be done uh, in order to fix the problem of gun violence. He, in fact, writes down eight of them, impose universal background checks, ban bump stocks, impose an age limit of 21, enforce a ban on possession of guns by anyone subject to a domestic violence order, limit purchase orders by any one person to no more than one a month, Uh, adopt micro stamping of cartridges, invest in smart gun purchases by police departments. Every single one of these things is just going to end up, if it were enacted, be annoying and will not not prevent a single shooting mass shooting or otherwise that anyone can point to none of them i mean there there are simple ways around all of this and and then there are also other ways in which some of this is just wrong now now you can't so you can serve your country you could be Uh, under the Kristoff rules let's just be clear you could be drafted into the Or or not. Forget about being drafted. You could serve your country. You could volunteer for the army or the Marine Corps. But and we all could be drafted as well. But uh, but you could do that. You could sign up and receive training and become uh, expert marksman and carry an M4 in the defense of your country. But when you came home, if you weren't 21 yet, you wouldn't be able to own a rifle to go hunting. You know, if, if you're 20. You wouldn't be able to uh, own a shotgun, or it did, based on what? Um, for the record, I disagree with making the alcohol uh, drinking age twenty-one as well. I think that that's also, I think that that's also problematic, and um, I, I don't like that age restriction. But uh, some of these other things are already laws. I mean, every he goes through eight, and this he's supposed to. Be, uh, I'm, I'm this smart uh, New York Times writer, Nicholas Kristof. And he goes through all of this, and none of it would do anything. None of it would save any lives. Most of it is just nonsense. And what it would do is harass and stigmatize gun owners. I I will note that our, our open dialogue requesting liberal friends on gun control, they don't shed any tears for the single mother who is a legal gun owner in Philadelphia, crosses over into New Jersey... And tells law enforcement when she's pulled over for a traffic ticket that she has a a firearm on her. And when she's facing 10 years in prison for that, you know, because we have this patchwork of gun laws because there's so much gun control already. Liberals don't feel bad about it.
0: He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Hey, Dave,
1: Welcome back. Buck Sexton here with you. And I, I know we've already been talking a lot about the updates from the uh, Las Vegas uh, mass shooting and uh, trying to follow the investigative steps and, and get a better sense of motive. We've been discussing the gun control debate, and, and I, I wanted to move on, and I will shortly, to some other topics. But I, I just had to finish because this is something that I had to deal with uh, during my CNN days frequently which is the let's pretend that there is a, a um, desire to overhype jihadist mass murders, jihadist terrorist mass murders, and to underplay anything that is not. And the most recent example of this is from Thomas Friedman, who I know I, I just before was talking to you about Nicholas Kristof and Olbermann and, and Kimmel, and these are all people that are are just charging into the gun control debate with no real knowledge of the subject matter and just a deep emotional response to this that's not rooted in how sad they are so much as it's how great they are. This is driven, my friends. The push for gun control on the left is driven mostly by sanctimony. It is not based on having a reasonable and open-minded and results-based discussion about how to save lives. And when they start bringing in jihadism uh, or the discussion about how this would be different if Paddock were a Muslim, then you know that we're just seeing this all now uh, play out with the usual reactionary left wing playbook of let's make this about uh, identity politics. Let's make it about xenophobia. Let's just run all of our all of our usual storylines out there and play to our base and stick our thumbs in the eyes of the other side while claiming while claiming that we that they would like to reach out to the other side and have an open and and fair dialogue about the matter. There are few people on Earth more overrated in their craft than Thomas Friedman Um, among the now because of social media and because of the Internet these individuals who became famous reporters and journalists in the 80s and into the 90s, uh, they've been exposed now for not being nearly as smart or as good at what they do as they were once able to fool people into thinking because, you know, they've got a whole staff looking at every piece and they've got a whole apparatus behind them. When it's just you on the fly saying things or you in in the heat of the moment having to respond and debate, you can't hide. And once you add social media into that, you see how some of these individuals are just uh, wild, Well, they're wildly overrated. Um, and, and once you can uh, pull together what it is that they really believe, you also see that they're pretty ignorant, too, on a whole bunch of subjects. But here's Tom Friedman's piece. In response to the shooting in Las Vegas, if, I, if only Stephen Paddock were a Muslim, here's what he writes, if only Stephen Paddock had been a Muslim, If only he had shouted Allahu Akbar before he opened fire on all those concert goers in Las Vegas. If only he had been a member of ISIS. If only we had a picture of him posing with the Koran in one hand and his semi-automatic rifle in another. If all of that had happened, no one would be telling us not to dishonor the victims and politicize Paddock's mass murder by talking about preventive remedies. No, no, no. Then we know what we'd be doing. We'd be scheduling immediate hearings in Congress about the worst domestic terrorism event since 9-11. Then Donald Trump would be tweeting every hour, I told you so, as he does minutes after every terror attack in Europe, precisely to immediately politicize them. Then there would be immediate calls for a commission of inquiry to see what new laws we need to put in place to make sure this doesn't happen again. Then we'd be weighing all options against the country of origin." But what happens when the country of origin is us? Now, this is a slow pitch down the middle that, as, as a pundit, as a commentator, as an analyst, I, I want to grip my bat in this metaphor and, and just hit the cover off of. I mean, this is so intellectually sloppy and so JV, even for Tom Friedman that I'm almost overwhelmed by the stupidity and the inanity of this argument. But let me just come at it from this angle first, because there's a lot of, I, I, I wanna I want hit the pitch so badly, I don't wanna take my eyes off it, right? Uh, first of all, we have been through this in the past. We have had mass shootings committed by Muslim jihadists on US soil, San Bernardino, the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, and the same people, the same people, the same voices who today are saying, look, gun control is not the answer, were saying then that, look, gun control is not the answer. The NRA, which is this boogeyman for the left, the NRA, gun rights advocates, Second Amendment defenders, They are consistent on this issue, despite what the left wants to believe. They are consistent. There is, in in fact, in fact, going back to my old days at CNN, I remember going on TV and a legal correspondent who was sitting in an anchor chair, so she was also a legal correspondent, but sometimes an anchor, said to me, but don't you think that people should be unable to buy firearms if they are placed on the... No fly list, and I, as a defender of the Second Amendment, said no. In fact, I do not think that you should lose your rights. Assuming we're talking about a U.S. citizen, do not think that you should lose your rights because of suspicion. So, so not only is this argument that Friedman makes about how the NRA and he goes into greater detail—I don't want to read the whole thing—but the, the basic of the basics of the argument are that if. Stephen Paddock were a Muslim, then the NRA wouldn't be leaping into action. Then there wouldn't be this chorus of Second Amendment defenders out there making these arguments. And that's just it's it's so wildly and obviously false. And it makes me think, does Tom Friedman, who is a very I mean, he married a very, very, very wealthy woman, you know, John Kerry style, uh, does Does he think that that we don't have access to Google and Wikipedia and news stories in the past? Or is it that he just doesn't take the time himself or his staff, whoever helps him write these things, to look at Google and Wikipedia and do a bit of due diligence and research? This is not an opinion thing. This experiment has been run before. This experiment of what would happen if it was a Muslim jihadist, which is repetitive, I know. A jihadist is always a Muslim, but I'm just, so I'm I'm trying to speak with clarity on this, who engaged in a mass murder in an act of terrorism because of political motive, and if you're fighting for the caliphate, whether you're directly connected to it or not, that's terrorism. But what would the response of the Second Amendment defenders be? We know. And, And I was saying, even me, who views the war against radical Islam as the defining battle of my generation and of Western civilization, and, you know, in what little ways I could, being part of investigations at the NYPD and, and doing uh, analysis of these issues, trying to inform policy, you know, wish I had been a door kicker, but what, whatever I could to help in that effort. I mean, I wasn't a door kicker. I wish I could have been. Um, But to help in that effort, I just view this as worse than sloppy, as a worse than sloppy argument. And as somebody who's made the argument about a no-fly list and and the rights of, and I'm like, look, so now any Muslim who ends up on the no-fly list in America has rights taken away? I don't, I'm not okay with that because I'm consistent. But the liberals, the Democrat media, CNN and others, oh, no, no. You know, they're all about how no discrimination against Muslims, unless it means that we can take a swipe at the Second Amendment, then they'll discriminate against Muslims. Then they're OK with it. This argument that Friedman is making here in this piece, which is which is echoed in other places as well. There are others out there who are saying, see if 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 Stephen Paddock had been uh, a, a Muslim or if he had converted to Islam, which I know people were initially in the first 24 hours wondering if that had happened. And no, it, it, it There's no reason to believe. There's no evidence, no uh, basis for that. Um, But if he had been a Muslim, then we would be having a completely different conversation about gun rights. No, we would not. Would we be having a terrorism conversation? Yes, because a psychopath on his own killing a bunch of people is a terrible thing that we wish we could prevent in all cases, but he does not have the support of international Uh, terrorist organizations. He does not have vast funding streams from Gulf states in the Middle East, as well as others. He does not have a coherent or cohesive ideology based upon the notion of world conquest and bringing Western civilization, most notably the American, uh, American polity, to its knees through violence and continuous acts of terror. No, that's jihadism that is a separate and bigger and strategic threat to us psychopaths who kill people and who are sick maniacs are a terrible evil thing but they do not have the same support they do not have the same long-term threat capability against us ideologically you know, we, we, are, we are going to take a different view of how to deal with what is a, a criminal act of somebody that is mentally uh, unstable and looks like had a, either a break with or just was a psychopath who was hiding it. That is a different problem set than people who have watched some videos online and bought into an ideology that has millions, I'm talking about now jihadism, millions if not tens of millions of adherents around the world and have been the cause of multiple wars and ongoing wars right now. Th- these are different issues, but the left pretends to not uh, be in a position to know the difference. So the if Pollock uh, or if Paddock pardon me, if Paddock was a Muslim is an argument put forward by people who think that they sound erudite, but in reality, they're just pathetic left-wing. Panderers, because the we've already been through this. San Bernardino, Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting, and the Second Amendment defenders are consistent because it is a right, because it is, it is about the Constitution, it is about a defense against tyranny and defending ourselves and our homes in day-to-day life. And one terrorist somewhere doesn't negate that, or a whole bunch of terrorists doesn't negate that. Uh, but we'll... I want to talk to you about uh, the, the Tillerson press conference here in just a moment. That was an interesting uh, exchange today. I also want to take your call. Sorry, I, I, we haven't gotten as many calls in the last couple of days as I have wanted to. Um, 844-900-BUCK, 800, uh, 844, gosh, get the number right, Buck, it's your show. 844 900 Also, uh, tomorrow, probably definitely Friday, we'll do a whole segment on Team Buck, speaks really enjoy that segment so if you want to maybe have so you don't have to be listening live although if you're listening live you can certainly write in too really appreciate when you do Uh, you can write to me at facebook.com slash buck sexton questions comments suggestions haikus sonnets about the constitution whatever Uh, you can offer that to me on facebook.com slash buck sexton and we can bring it in to team buck speaks which will definitely be on thursday or on friday and probably thursday as well and i'm going to try to work in some lepanto stuff for friday
2: first my commitment to the success of our president and our country is as strong as it was the day i accepted his offer to serve as secretary of state there's never been a consideration in my mind to leave i serve at the appointment of the president and i'm here for as long as the president feels i can be useful to achieving his objectives did you address the, the main headline of this story that you called the president a moron and if not where do you think these reports i'm just i'm are not about? going to deal with petty stuff like that i mean this is this is what i don't understand about washington again you know i'm not from this place but the places i come from we don't deal with that kind of petty nonsense
1: that was a Secretary of State holding a, a somewhat impromptu press conference, or at least a, a surprising press conference, where he had to address a news story that is being repeated and, and, and even confirmed by news outlets that the Secretary of State called the president a moron. Um, I would like to know who thinks that this is really news, that this is helpful And how this doesn't fall into the category of anything that the press can do to sow more dissension, to create more division, to exacerbate any personal uh, issues and personnel issues that exist inside the White House, they will do. That the hashtag resistance is not just alive and well, it is the media, by and large. There are some exceptions, but overall... They firmly believe that it is their role to hobble the administration in any way that they can. And if that means reporting on high school gossip as a, as a news story, they will do so. Um, I, I do recall that there was that uh, Rolling Stone reporter who did the interview with some members of General McChrystal's staff, and Obama demanded that general's resignation afterwards. Uh, So this is something that I'm I'm not going to pretend that this doesn't happen to other presidencies and other administrations. I'm just saying that, well, it's particularly bad right now under the Trump administration. It's all been uh, elevated. And there's also that was widely that incident I'm talking about with General McChrystal. That was more or less considered to be uh, a party foul. Within the media that, that that guy should not have that Rolling Stone reporter who I believe is actually deceased, uh, but that he should not have uh, essentially gotten a, a source or gotten, you know, interviewees for off the cuff chatter like that in trouble. And, you know, I, and, I, and I agree with that assessment. You know, people in the press should be exercising responsibility and should not should not be causing uh, dissension and and destruction of careers and working relationships for senior government officials just because it amuses them. And you could tell today that the press was deeply amused by this story and wanted to put a lot more time into it. Uh, Here's um, uh, Hallie Jackson.
2: It's petty is irrelevant. What's relevant is it's true. Safe to say NBC News will not be issuing an apology to America, as the president is calling for, uh, because, again, got to underscore, the secretary did not refute directly some of the key points in your piece. You know,
1: I'm just wondering if you were to sit down with the the biggest names in journalism right now, I mean, the biggest institutions and some of the biggest individuals within those institutions, And ask them a question like, if you got a hold of the uh, personal medical files of, you know, from not the stuff that I I know that for presidents they I'm talking about, you know, the, the, the personal psychological medical files of a of just a senior government official that works for Trump would publishing those be ethical just to show that, you know, that somebody maybe was depressed at one point or had a really rough divorce or would that be ethical? I would wonder, I think the answer would be yes. They'd say, well, we would determine the news value, but blah, 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 but they would leave open that, Yeah, they would. If it embarrassed a Trump person, they would do it. If it caused problems for this administration, they would do it. That is their journalistic standard, and that is why when they talk about journalistic standards and try to lecture the rest of the country, people just don't want to hear it. They just don't want to hear it. You know, they are they are tired of it. They have had enough of the lectures from partisan propagandists posing as journalists, which is what we have, by and large, in the media. And this is where occasionally I'll get some some sanctimonious and snarky uh, former left wing colleague of mine from at least one cable news network that will will come out and say, well, you're a part of the media Buck." I say, no, I'm really I'm really not because I don't. Stand around saying, well, I'm a I'm a journalist. People say, Buck, what do you know about journalistic ethics? Well, I mean, I have read about them and and I'm familiar with them, but I always want to respond. I don't have journalist ethics. I just have ethics. I just don't sell people out. I don't lie to people. All right, everybody, we have been discussing all the latest with the uh, administration and certainly the president's visit down to Las Vegas along with it. We've got Sarah Westwood on the line now. She is a White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner. Sarah, great to have you back.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, first, what are you hearing before we get into Trump in, in Las Vegas? Uh, what are you hearing about the, the Tillerson dust-up? There's this press conference that he holds. He doesn't initially say he didn't call the president a moron. He says this is childish The whole thing seems kind of childish to me, but a lot of news outlets are are running with verifications of the moron rumor, so to speak.
2: Exactly. I think that initially Tillerson's press conference was read by the media as a non-denial denial. He didn't directly address the charge that he called the president a moron. He just referred to that as petty nonsense, and he sort of sidestepped it. And I think the State Department kind of recognized that that was the reaction because then they made a point of specifically denying that Tillerson had ever called the president a moron. But talking to folks in and around the White House, I think that it's clear there's a lot of anger over that story, even though Tillerson came out and denied it. Even though Tillerson came out and reaffirmed his commitment to the president, it's clear that relations between Trump and Tillerson have soured, and that has taken place over a number of months. Uh, And it's not clear how long Tillerson will even want to remain in the administration with this kind of scrutiny on him and with so many foreign policy crises in his lap. And remember that Tillerson and Trump ideologically don't align on every issue. So that in and of itself has put strain on their relationship.
1: Where are some of the issues or where are some of the places of separation? I know that there are ways to get, uh, you know, there's ways ways to get clicks by doing the You know, rumor mongering from inside the White House and the palace intrigue stuff. But there are some legitimate areas of policy differences, I understand it. What are they between President Trump and Secretary of State Tillerson?
2: Well, the most prominent is the Iran deal. Secretary Tillerson is one of the most high profile voices within the administration who's been pushing President Trump to recertify the Iran deal uh, next week, actually, when he'll be forced to do so because he has to certify Iran's compliance every 90 days. That deadline is coming up on the 15th. Tillerson has been urging President Trump to just recertify it, to stick to it, saying that it keeps America safer. But President Trump very clearly wants to decertify the deal. I mean, you heard what he said to the U.N. General Assembly that he thinks it's dangerous, that it threatens America. So that right there has been a major source of string between the two and that is going to just get worse over the next week or so as we get closer to that deadline and closer to president trump potentially ripping up the iran deal
1: we're speaking to sarah westwood who's the washington examiner's white house correspondent sarah what have you heard in terms of uh, aftermath not from the press but from anybody within the admitted by are you are you okay it sounds like you're calling us from the rooftop of a building on k street are you all right are you are you in a safe space right now
2: i'm in a Space. i'm
1: sorry it's windy no I, today. Sure. I just want to make sure you know safety first like if you have to take shelter somewhere if you're in a wind gust or something go right <laughs> ahead right no but but uh but tell, tell me about the response from within the administration to trump's visit to puerto rico uh he he was a bit unorthodox in his approach in puerto rico i mean th- there were some moments where even i was like I'm not sure i would have done that president trump
2: clearly the point of the trip should have been to reassure observers that he is engaged with the Puerto Rican crisis, that he does understand the gravity of the situation, and that the federal government is on top of it. And you're right, I don't know that necessarily his trip reassured people of that, particularly his critics who are predisposed to believe that he's not doing enough. He made some off-script remarks in that meeting with first responders and with local and federal officials about making a joke that, you know, the Puerto Rican crisis is blowing up the U.S. government, Uh, you know, some other comments that were not well received and the headlines that came out of that meeting maybe overshadowed the point of the day. But overall, it was kind of the, the sort of trip you would expect any Republican president to make he it, it was more traditional than anything he passed out supplies he met with first responders he received a recovery briefing those are the types of traditional events you'd expect in a disaster situation so in that sense it was structured
1: all right sarah westwood everybody of the uh, washington examiner she's white house correspondent go to washington Washingtonexaminer.com for her latest sarah thank you so much thank you well, team, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you get a chance, give us a ring. I, I have to say, I think that uh, Tillerson, see Tillerson's an interesting case because he can't be bullied, I think, the way a lot of other administration figures do. He, here's what we've all become more familiar with in, in recent years, that a lot of government officials— Now view their time in government as a means to other more, much more lucrative opportunities that government officials take the job with an eye now to going on the 50 to 150 thousand dollar an hour lecture circuit that they uh, are, are trying to build a resume that they can capitalize on afterwards. So this notion of just service, especially in senior posts. And public facing posts. Right. That, this is why more than ever before, I think you see fierce competition for spokesperson roles, White House, State Department, etc. because once you are known in that way in the press, then you come out and you have a book deal and you have a speech. And you, the good thing about Tillerson is the guy's worth uh, like four or five hundred million or something. I mean, he's worth a ton of money. He was the CEO of the what had been until the Internet giants came along, clearly the most valuable company in the world. And he's a guy who doesn't he doesn't need this. He, he doesn't need this. And as I've said before, Tillerson could play the uh, crusty veteran sheriff in pretty much any Western film ever made. Right. I mean, you could just put Tillerson in there. You can just see the, the sheriff's badge on him and the Stetson and, and he, he would fit right in. So why would he stay if he didn't have to or if he didn't? Uh, see a a motivation that was actually about service you know i don't i'm not in those conversations where tillerson is doing diplomacy I, i don't know how good he is as secretary of state in that sense but i i do feel like at least he can't be bought and at least he's not trying to position himself for a lucrative after government career i i think this is this mentality unfortunately has uh, infected a lot of senior government roles, and they're seen less and less as service and more uh, as a more about trying to get ready for the next step. Right, so you go into D.C. for a year, you come back. I mean, maybe even you know less than a year. If you serve a whole administration, you did your thing, right? If you serve the four years, I get it. But if you serve a year or or less, it feels kind of like, well, what was that all about anyway? And and you, this is becoming more common now because, look, the, the media runs the government. The media and the government are more intertwined than ever before, right? I mean, you've got media figures in government, government figures going into media, and on the private sector side, the media side, for some of these people, there's a lot of money at stake. I like that Tillerson doesn't need the cash. I I know that this is maybe an old-fashioned way to approach this stuff, but... I think that he's staying around because he views his role as serving and he thinks he is still useful to the president, even if he does have some moments where he is very terse in in uh, to the president's face or behind his back. I think he views uh, his position as being worthwhile for the betterment of the country, not for his own advancement. And, and that's a very that's a very important distinction. I think this is often lost these days, I, I think. Um, There are advantages. And you see this with Tillerson, you see this with some other government figures, too. I mean, the Clintons were so wildly corrupt because they wanted cash so badly. If if Hillary Clinton wasn't and Bill Clinton weren't trying to become hundred millionaires, I think Hillary probably would be president. I think she would have managed to win one of the two elections. Right. But it was so she's such a cronyist such a a corrupt and venal and grasping person because she wants that cash that it it changed. I think her greed changed the history of this country. Uh, So that's just my theory. I'm just putting it out there. I think the Clintons greed uh, changed the history of this country because she ended up not being president uh, in large part, at least because of that. So that's not an issue with Tillerson. We'll see. I I don't think he's going to last much beyond this year before resigning. But I do think he wants to weigh in on the Iran deal and some other critical issues. And so that might keep him in what is a very difficult position, difficult spot. All right. The buck is back and the Freedom Hut is rocking as per usual. Uh, So. So uh, there was some Russia collusion investigation talk today. I know you're so excited. You're like, yeah, Buck, give me more Russia collusion talk. Because that's going to be awesome, man. Uh, and and I, I agree. It's usually really boring. And In fact, the update from Senate Intelligence Committee member Senator Burr was, in fact, rather boring. Let me just give you a, a little a, a snippet of it so you, you get the sense. And then I'll tell you why I'm telling you about this if it's not that exciting.
0: Now we're over 100 interviews later, which translates to 250 plus hours of interviews. Almost 4,000 pages of transcripts. It's safe to say that the inquiry has expanded slightly. Initial interviews and document review generated hundreds of additional requests on our part for information. The committee continues to look into all evidence to see if there was any hint of collusion. Now, I'm not going to even discuss initial findings because we haven't any. We've got a tremendous amount of documents still to go through.
1: (laughs) Okay, so this is really a non-update update update from Senate Intelligence Committee Member Burr. He's he's just like, I want to let you know that I'm not going to tell you anything, and even if I could tell you stuff, I wouldn't tell you stuff, but we are doing a lot and reading a lot of stuff, but we have no conclusions, nothing interesting to say about this yet. That's where we are. Okay, here's why I think this is noteworthy. I, I, for one, just alone as an issue, that the uh, the Russia collusion stuff is is, is still ongoing in Mueller, and you know we're going to trust me. There'll be a Mueller bombshell dropping any day now about uh, someone's taxes or someone something. It's not it's not going to be anything about undermining democracy, which is what the whole initial allegation was, right? But If there was something that was that noteworthy, we would know. Congress cannot keep secrets, particularly secrets that are politically advantageous to one side or the other. If there was information out there already, if in all the documents and in all the investigation, they had somebody in the Trump administration nailed, not for taxes or Wire fraud or, you know, that I've been saying all along, you know, Manafort, I think the guy's in trouble. I mean, who knows? But not for some non-Russia collusion crime that they may be keeping under wraps and they're going to try to leverage it. But if there was a real uh, crazy piece of information that would finally solidify all these insinuations and allegations and charges about Trump administration, Trump administration colluding with Russia, we would know. Somebody would have leaked it. Someone would have said something. It would have gotten out. No way. I don't care how. Uh, you know, look at James Comey. Everyone's like, "Oh, James Comey. He's America's Boy Scout. He would never do anything wrong, right?" And then we find out he's leaking stuff to the New York Times. You, what do you think? Mueller's guides—they're all Democrats. You think they're any different? You think that these senators—I mean, they—they're they, all polit— <laughs> they're literally politicians. They're not. Prosecutors who are or politicians who are pretending to be prosecutors, so we would know, and that also makes me uh that that factors into my thinking because I'm bringing together some bringing together some different stories here from it factors into my thinking about the motive for the las vegas shooter because i I'm hearing some stuff now and i i'm uh, i've i've been on uh, been on TV and been told by other analysts and and I'm hearing about how Law enforcement has this piece together. They're just not releasing it yet. Now, that may be true, but let's take Occam's razor here for a second before we accept that there's some bombshell revelation that is coming from law enforcement on the Las Vegas case. Just like with Russia collusion, if it was there at this point, we would know. Given what happened in Las Vegas and the timeline and the turnaround of the facts of, a, of an investigation like this, if there were a clear, I'm not saying there's not some evidence and some, but if there was an obvious political motivation for what happened in Las Vegas. And I I saw last night the press conference with the sheriff who said, you know, if, if he he's, I, I, the words, the specific words he used are very important and I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, if he, meaning Paddock, radicalized in secret you know, that's something we're going to look at, which was a strange thing to say, because people are obviously going to. But look, the guy's a law enforcement official. He's not a not a a press person. Uh, you know, he's not he's not a member of the media. He's, he's not a lawyer who's parsing every word. He's just trying to give the public information. But it did strike some, uh, some, including me, as kind of. hmm. We're still we're still leaving open radicalization as a possibility because that seemed like it was discounted from the list right away. I still, I can't say, you know, never say never, right? I can't say 0% chance on that because we don't have a replacement theory yet. Uh, but I would give it a 1 in 10,000 chance. You know, these are not, these are not good odds that, that that's what we'll find out about the motive. Um, but even for a clear political motive, think about what that would mean if law enforcement was keeping that under wraps at this point if they already now they may find one out they may find this out tomorrow but if they already had a note that explained in detail what the motivation was here for this mass slaughter of innocents in Las Vegas you're going to tell me that law enforcement officers are they're not going to they're not going to let it get out that oh you know we we 100% know this is political i, I just think that there's Uh, there's a lot of ways that you can get close, at least to an answer, or you can up the odds of thinking about something, an issue, a story like this in the right way without having insider access just based upon what's likely. And I find it very unlikely right now. I could be wrong that law enforcement knows, knows what was going on in Stephen Paddock's uh, head or you know, up, leading up to and during that mass shooting, and I also find it almost impossible that there is an administration destroying revelation that is just waiting to be unleashed about Russia Trump collusion. Because if it was there, we would know. It is very hard. Uh, you know, I, I I was I was an analyst, right? This is what I I just dealt in information. It is very hard to deal to to keep things secret that everybody wants to know keeping stuff secret that doesn't really matter that you just should keep secret because it's the professional and responsible thing to do yeah sure but this the russia collusion narrative that's not going to get kept a secret and i don't think although this is i'm less sure of i don't think that law enforcement will be able to keep the motives of the las vegas shooter a secret (laughs)
0: He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. We
1: have uh, the sheriff, Joseph Lombardo of Clark County, giving an update right now into the Las Vegas shooting investigation. Let's go to
0: it. Some of those patients were double counted or they were misconstrued as event injuries versus other injuries such as car accidents. So today I'm comfortable in saying the injured number is 489. Deaths still remain at 59. 59. I had told you 59 before, um, plus one being the suspect, uh, that changed. Um, today it's 58, plus one, the suspect, 59, and it was the same reason uh, that occurred before, as I explained. So hope you understand that. Um, nobody wants that number to go up, and by the grace of God, it went down. Uh, so um, <clears throat> that's a good night. So today I'll provide you some updates on our investigation of the mass shooting Sunday night at Route 91. More than 100 investigators have spent the last 72 hours combing through the life of 64-year-old Stephen Paddock to produce a profile of someone I will call disturbed and dangerous. What we know is Stephen Paddock is a man who spent decades acquiring weapons and ammo and living a secret life, much of which will never be fully understood. He meticulously planned on the worst domestic attack in United States history. As many of you already reported, Paddock rented a room at the Ogden Hotel in downtown Las Vegas. This has been confirmed, okay? Reasons that ran through Paddock's mind is unknown, but it was directly during the same time as life is beautiful. We have received recovered um, evidence from that location. We don't know if it is evidence, but we have recovered items um, and uh, video uh, evidence. And I don't wanna, you know what, I'm using the wrong term. Evidence is not the term. We have recovered video from there to review uh, Mr. Paddock's actions while he was there. Now it's important for you to understand, this was not, the rooms were not rented by the Ogden. It was done through Airbnb. Uh, by a private owner unknown uh, to the Ogden. Um, so we have very great cooperation from the owners of Life is Beautiful and the Ogden, and they are in full cooperation. <clears throat> okay, while well, we have already spoken to many people who have contacted with Stephen Paddock at hotels and places he frequented, we still have more interviews to conduct. Since Monday, there have been many questions for us to release a timeline, and today we have one. I want to point out the information previously reported on the time of the first shot was based on a CAD report. That's a, our Computer Aided Dispatch. That's our, what we do for calls for service. So that report is dependent on who the, per, you know, a particular person calling in and that timestamp. But what we have done through the review of body-worn cameras, we are able to pull it back to um, previously from 10:08 to 10:05. Uh, So, Carlos. So, I'm going to give you a a chance to review that, take photographs of it, and I'll walk you through each timeline. So, at 10:05, the first fired by the suspect. This was seen on close-circuit television from the concert venue. 1012, first two officers arrived on the 31st floor and announced that gunfire is coming from directly above them. 1015, the last shots were fired from the suspect per body worn camera. So if you're looking at the math, 10 minutes. 1017, the first two officers arrive on the 32nd floor. 1018, security officer tells the LVMPD officers he was shot and gives the exact location of the suspect's room. Now you notice a minute uh, delta there uh, before they broadcasted it. Obviously they were in a conversation with the security guard immediately upon them exiting the elevators. Um, Between 1026 and 1030, eight additional officers arrived on the 32nd floor and began to move systematically down the hallway, clearing each room and looking for any injured people. This They move this way because no longer hear the gunfire of the active shooter situation. 1055, eight officers arrive in the stairwell at the opposite end of the hallway nearest the suspect's room. So when I say nearest the suspect's room, you can imagine the doorway of the hotel room. This stairwell and this door access is approximately um, two to three feet away. 1120, the first breach was set off and officers entered the suspect's room. They observed the suspect down on the ground and also saw a second door that could not be accessed from their position. So it's a suite, and we have, there's, you have a main area of the suite, which is a living room, uh, uh, kitchen, dinette area, and then on opposite ends of that is two bedrooms. I'm sorry, where did I leave off? Somebody call it out. Okay, so if you do the math on that, all the way up to eleven twenty from ten oh five, we're looking at seventy five okay, so minutes. So additional
1: um, timeline, no, they, inform- uh, timeline information here. We're going to keep an eye on this to see. I mean, the, the this is is uh, obviously updates on the investigation, which which we wanted to know. Uh, but the sheriff already went over. He said that they they don't have anything. On on motive, uh, yet I mean, they don't have any. Certainly, nothing conclusive. And and I didn't really catch anything that he was willing to uh, or was able to share on that uh, specific issue. I mean, he's now just going through the the timeline in detail, so everyone understands. So yeah, there was a la- there was a, a lag period where officers knew where the shooter was, and he wasn't still firing. So they were setting up in the hallway and. I understand look, the officers need to take care of the, their lives too in the situation. Be very careful approaching a suspect who's got what are near automatic weapons. I know they're not automatic weapons, but he uh, would have been at least not uh, out and would not have been able to outgun the SWAT officers. It would have been pretty close. So uh, they they responded very quickly. But then they held at the at the scene until they were able to breach the doors and go in. He, he they're not clear on when he killed himself. I guess I, that part of it I did not get um, as to how soon in the process that happened. And, and just so you know, I'm, I'm seeing here on, we we have monitors here in the uh, in the hut, and I, I'm seeing the photos. And many of you may have already seen on that they're published in the Daily Mail, and I think Fox had them of the interior of the room. This guy set up cameras in the hallway, including on a room service cart. So he was uh, trying to prepare for. Uh, anyone and, and, and everyone who was going to come and, and get him and he does and some of the firearms were on tripods so this was just about putting maximum rounds uh maximum rounds into the the what he turned into a killing zone of this uh music festival without aiming and without really uh, any of the the usual slowdowns uh that somebody would have if they were trying to hit specific targets. He was just trying to hit everyone. Um, nothing, though, on motive. And at, at this point, I just have to wonder if we need to come to grips with the possibility that, yeah. Well, we, we know he's a psychopath because anyone who does what he did is a psychopath. But if you have a, uh, a, a political axe to grind, if you're someone who wants to make a point, if you're going to kill a whole lot of innocent people and then just kill yourself, for some reason of politics, I, I think as as crazy as the individual has to be to do that in the first place, I think they would make it that person would make it clear why they were doing it. So it is still possible there is a note or there is a manifesto or there is something that lays out the why. But right now we do not have a why other than this guy's a psychopath. And, and that may be the why you know I mean, you know serial killers sure there are people who will analyze their childhoods and and there will be some telltale signs of psychopathy malignant narcissism other terms of psychology and psychiatry that uh, are used in in cases like this there's even a there's even a scale there's a system it's like 20 different uh points on it and i think uh ted, you know ted bundy for example was like a I think it's out of forty or thirty. I can't remember, but he was just one shy of a perfect score on the psychopath scale. I mean, there are ways they try to measure these things, Um, but that's what I—that's—that's my inclination at this point. We have nothing, nothing new to add to the motive. I mean, that was why everyone was. Well, I mean, we're getting updates in the investigation, but I, I think that there was some anticipation going into this press conference tonight of maybe now they'll finally tell us what they know about this guy. But nothing. Nothing, nothing new about his mindset or his motive. That's, that's the update, my friend. so I wanted to share that with you in real time. I really hold to this uh, contention that, well, that I have. The college is increasingly just a scam. And like, I went to a four-year college and all that and whatever. I think I think it's, I think it's too long. I think it's too expensive. I think that the results do not justify the time and the expense. I think that the focus has drifted so far from education, and they've really just become these little factories of you know social justice warriors. Um, and there's not nearly enough emphasis on learning. It's much—it's much more about I don't know self-actualization or you know finding oneself and stuff like this, right? Which you know, you don't need four years and, and 30 or 40 grand a year. Some places, 50 or 60 grand a year now uh, to sell. I know some of you are like, fuck, that's crazy. Yeah, state school is more like in-state, I think, is 10 and under usually. But if you go to a private private four-year college, it's, you're looking thirty forty 30, 40 grand a year. And I I just think that, uh, and there's a trillion-dollar student loan debt bubble out there. Um, I, I think it's interesting to hear some of the older generation uh, the boomers what's up boomers uh who will say that it's crazy that these kids who support bernie sanders just think someone's going to wipe their debts away oh yeah you get a bernie sanders style government and they, they will find a way to to wipe that debt away it doesn't mean it goes away it means that you know the rest of society will pay for it but the taxpayer will pay uh, but that could happen that could ha- that's a very popular thing, and that could happen at some point in the future. But other than just the the, the generalizations I'm making here about how I think college is a um, college is, actually, it's, did I say it's a scam? That might be a little, but it's it's definitely overrated. And a lot of colleges are a scam, not all of them, but a lot of them. This notion that we all have to go spend four years of our lives uh, studying what. Especially now, you can most – because by the time you get to college, you can already read and add and write and do some basic math and all those things. Or at least you're supposed to be able to do that. So when I look at this now and and I I see the way this is playing out, and then I have these moments where a school like Berkeley, which is an elite institution, it's hard to get into Berkeley. Very selective by the numbers, although – That's no guarantee of anything these days either for college kids. But it's been getting attention because of student protests and antifa and black block and all that. Uh, But then you just have times where you say, what are they teaching these kids exactly? What are they? What purpose is this university serving for these students at any point? Here is a story from Campus Reform where you had students who were protesting their exam and we actually have audio of this
0: since the test will not
2: be canceled today, as we all see, then postponing the exam will be the best or instead of an exam we're requesting a take home essay with significant time to prepare. Our well being are being put on the line because of our emotional, mental and physical stress that this university is compounding with what is already going on on our everyday lives. The essay should be allowed should allow students to the material and allow students to engage with the content beyond memorizing details that can feel disconnected for students who feel this information relies closely too. How about you respect somebody talking? Why How about why students shut up? Yes. take so, so much space. How exactly. You? you listen. You have to listen, okay? Listen to us. Okay? Exactly. Are you trying to silence us right now? Is that what you're trying to do?
0: Oh, exactly. Well where we're oh, tra- oh
2: trying to live our lives? We're trying to live our lives. Exactly.
0: This is our mental health, this is our physical health, this is... What I'm what I more than prepared to do, we're going to let the students take you, exam. We can walk outside and I can, can continue the conversation. I don't know why you're still
2: like, sitting down, y'all. I don't understand. I really don't understand. You can take your head, but people are dying out there. But this university is protecting my supremacist, and y'all are protecting them too.
1: There you go. Don't want to take a t- I – I don't know that the audio wasn't that clear. Just so – in case you missed some of that, you got students during an exam who are, who are complaining about how it's it's their, their mental health and their physical health at stake. So they want a take-home exam, which just means they're all going to cheat, right? We're, we're not idiots. I mean, you know, I want a take-home exam, yeah, because they're not going to then work with each other and make sure that they have all the right answers. I mean, you know, come on. A take-home, a take-home exam? All Oh, they're on the honor. They're on the honor system at Berkeley, Buck. Sure they are, everybody. Sure they are. Uh, But but notice that, you know, this is this is a learned behavior. This is a learned pattern. You don't like something. Claim that it makes you feel unsafe. I mean, these are all these are all the, the, the terms and these are the ploys. These are the stratagems that these college kids now learn from other professors as well as other students. And this stuff works a lot of the time. These university administrators run around scared. The moment somebody goes, you know, I don't
2: feel safe,
1: you know, the moment they establish themselves as the most delicate of delicate snowflakes, they get concessions. The the university goes, oh, you know, we we don't want to offend it. We don't want to do anything wrong. We don't want to offend anybody. Unless, I mean, if you're a a white male Christian, you're allowed to be offended as much as, you know, that, you know, because you are, your presence on the campus is offensive because patriarchy and. White supremacy. Uh, They they even mentioned white supremacy. I mean, these are students that are supposed to be taking... This is at an elite institution at Berkeley. You have students who are supposed to be taking an exam, and they stand up and demand that they can have a take-home exam, say that it's because their emotional and physical health is being threatened by having to take an exam. They're college students, everybody. And then at the end, when another student's like, hey, can I just take my exam? These obviously left-wing students are like... "Uh, People are dying out there and then accuses them of white supremacy. I don't know. I- Exam taking now is white supremacy. Uh, r- what else? R- right and wrong answers on a test. Are these wh- is this all? Wh- what is not white supremacy now? Uh, this is you know, r- racism, I think, has been so overused as an accusation and, and as a as a card to play. That they've now moved on the left has moved on to white supremacy. They've just they've just upped it. You know, they, they've gone even more hardcore on this, more extreme. And so instead of saying that something is racist or just talking even about white privilege, now it's all white supremacy. I don't know. I, I just think that if if higher education, if colleges and universities were a stock, I would short them. You know, I wish there was a way to just because I think everyone's going to realize that there are too there are too many schools that aren't educating people, which means that over time, the institutions, most notably employers, who are supposed to reward, in, reward people for their work in college, are going to say, "I just, I need to find a way to find the best, most responsible, hardworking, smartest people," and the degree that someone comes with is not a, not only is not a guarantee of that; it's increasingly just irrelevant. I will tell you that a lot of the smartest people I worked with in government went to what would be considered non-competitive or non-selective colleges. A lot of them. And many of those who, especially in the graduate programs, like when you get into graduate programs in humanities, and international relations, things like that, it's really just a function of, you know, can mommy and daddy pay for it for you? Because at that level, you know, you got four years of private college, then a couple of years getting a master's on top of that, you know, someone supporting you along the way. These people are like 25, 26 years old before they get their master's in international relations. I just decided, you know, I'd, I'd rather do international relations than get my master's in it. I don't know. Uh, I think that these these credentialing programs, it's it's uh, it's all a house of cards. I, I think it's going to come come crashing down at some point. Or, or we're going to reform it, and people are going to realize that college should be shorter, should be more efficient, should be about learning. They should not be minor league sports Uh, programs either, you know, and now some of you are going to get mad at me for that, but a lot of this NCAA, uh, you know, that's a whole separate conversation. Maybe we'll have maybe I'll, uh, uh, Ty and I like to talk sports when he's around, maybe we'll talk a bit about NCAA.
0: He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops.
1: Peter Thiel is a libertarian billionaire, co-founder of PayPal, and, and done a lot of Uh, really exceptional and very lucrative things in his career. Uh, He also spoke at the Republican National Convention for Donald Trump and uh, took a lot of heat for it. But I think the single greatest thing that Peter Thiel has ever participated in is uh, helping to finally take down a site named Gawker that had built up millions and millions of dollars of revenue on just the most sick, amoral, immoral, sadistic, nihilistic character destruction and reputation annihilation imaginable. Uh, Gawker was an evil, oozing, festering sore, not just on the Internet or journalism, but on humanity. It was a business model built on the pornification and weaponization of individuals, including private citizens, uh, flaws in order to sometimes make a a political point, even though, you know, it's not like finding out that an individual is uh, having an affair with the maid or is uh, a closeted homosexual. These are things that, you know, these are the kinds of stories that Gawker had run. That's not going to win a national political debate one way or the other. It's just going to ruin someone's life. uh, Particularly, we're talking about private citizens. And and Gawker was an outright and an utter disgrace. And Peter Thiel funded the lawsuit that bankrupted Gawker, and we should all be thankful to him. And I know a lot of you are like, "Oh, Buck, I don't, you know, I don't care about Gawker. I probably never even heard of Gawker." Well, let me tell you this: Gawker. Everyone that you know and trust in media, everyone that you uh, can recognize as an ethical and decent person who's trying to tell the right stories on TV, trying to bring you honest facts and, and build careers and, uh, and platforms to positively influence national perception and discussion to defend this country in the battlefield of ideas. All of those people were targets of Gawker. Gawker was hoping to find some way to ruin their lives under the auspices of, oh, well, we're just telling the truth. Uh, But in reality, they were were just an organization built on dirty tricks and low blows and just the worst kind of uh, gossip mongering. And and just they were appalling. They were a simply appalling group. And I'm so glad that they were finally brought down after they had ruined many lives. Uh, But the Gawker mentality is still alive and well in much of the media. I saw this last night uh, on uh, Twitter from the politics editor at the Daily Beast who tweets out, if you had an affair with a pro-life congressman who encouraged you to have an abortion, we at the Daily Beast would like to hear from you. Uh, If this is no. This is because the only absolute right in this country, on the left, according to the left, the only completely absolute cannot be changed, cannot be restricted. It's not voting rights. It's obviously not gun rights, which they want to eliminate entirely. It's abortion, which is not even a right. It's the taking of human life without just cause, which is murder. Uh, but that's the only. And this is the uh, the greatest sin of the modern Democrat Party. And there will come a time, and I, and I know it's. It seems like it may be a ways off now. There will come a time when future generations look back at what was happening in this country and the Democrat Party and and Planned Parenthood and this huge institution of of death of murder. Uh, they will. It'll be unthinkable. We will. We will look back on this period uh, in time as. In in some ways, morally analogous to, you know, the Aztecs used to engage in human sacrifice. How savage, how barbaric, who could do such a thing? Well, we engage in uh, murder for convenience in this country. Now, I don't mean you and me, but I mean, America legalizes and at least half of the American electorate is more or less okay with uh, this process of abortion. But the reason I bring up Gawker and and this and then this editor at the Daily Beast um, is that they make it seem like if they could find one congressman who uh, who had, you know, who had sinned, who had broken his marital vows, who had and who had said allegedly. I mean, there's never going to be any proof of this really. Right. But had said in his or her personal life, or in this case, it would be a him um, had encouraged somebody to have an abortion that that would change what's going on, that that would win the debate, that this is a necessary component of the discussion, when the truth is that it's just a distraction and it's also a message to all the rest of us, that you cannot stand for virtue without the left trying to destroy your character, trying to go as deep into your background, dig up whatever dirt they can, and, and ruin you. This won't change anything. I mean, if they find... I know that there's this one woman who's come out and said that she had an affair with a congressman, and he said, I'm aware of the story. It doesn't change the debate over abortion at all. It just This is just slinging mud. They say, it's oh, it's, it's hypocrisy? Well, uh, I, would, I would counter that charge by saying that currently abortion is legal in this country, and there would be a lot less confusion over the morality of it by anybody, never mind congressmen, uh, if we actually would stand up as a society and say, you know, this this needs to stop, and I know that the uh, Congress has passed a ban past twenty weeks, Wh- who could stand against that? What what person in good conduct? I mean, I'm really I'm really putting aside the oh I'm a talk radio host for a second. I'm I'm just speaking to you, Buck, to all of you. Who thinks it's okay to kill a baby after five months? I mean, I'm not okay with killing a baby at any point, but after five months? And and the Daily Beast response is to try and track down someone here or there to destroy their character and make it I mean, this is depraved, everybody. We aren't just in a culture war, we are in a war for the soul of this country and the people living in it, and the left fights dirty. Hey team, welcome back. You know, when you get into a lot of these political discussions and it's happening. Uh, often this week. We see it uh, over gun control in the aftermath of Las Vegas, which I know we've talked a lot about that already. But the usual approach from the left, from the Democrats, the Democrat media on any number of issues is to frame it as uh, one side that cares and another side that does not. Now, that means that even if The left is wrong on something, which I think they've been proven now on gun control to be wrong, uh, and they have for a long time, but this is now catching on, and we've really had enough of the hysteria and the virtue signaling, but even if they're proven to be wrong, and this extends to many issues, and I'm about to get into another one that we haven't talked about here in a while, because their intentions are uh, based in they like to say empathy. I think sympathy is a word that we should use more because empathy is to feel someone else's pain as your own. Sympathy is to try and have an understanding of someone else's pain, but to also maintain that it is theirs and you can't actually know. Or, uh, But they, anyway, they cloak themselves in this notion that uh, they are the nice ones, they're the caring ones, that the political left, and I also do think that there is a psychological profile. There is a basic approach to everyday life that exists with people who are Democrats and leftists. And, and, and it's different than what people who are on the right uh, think of and, and how they approach things. So I, I believe that there are r- real personality differences and not just political philosophy, but uh, everyday philosophy differences about uh, or between the left and, and the right. Uh, that's a discussion, I suppose, for another day. Uh, But on this notion of the left cares, it's a very uh, convenient uh, approach to a political policy discussion or really any debate to just say, well, I care, therefore I have some uh, moral authority or or, or I'm making this a moral imperative because I care so much. Uh, This has been the case on the gender uh, and particularly the transgender rights issue from the beginning. And there's a really interesting piece in The Federalist, uh, which addresses something that you, you don't hear much about, because I think it, it can threaten, in some ways, threaten the entire uh, edifice, the the entire notion of a transgender rights movement, as though this is part of the civil rights movement. This is an extension of the civil rights movement for transgender Individuals And the piece is written by Walt uh, Heyer, who is a formerly trans woman who had decided that they, uh, that pardon me, see that just happened. Uh, I just slipped and said they, which is a plural pronoun. I didn't mean to, but I have to catch myself now uh, that he became a she, so to speak, and then decided that it was a mistake. Wanted to uh, go back to reverse the gender reassignment surgery that uh, Walt had engaged in a long time ago. And what you find out when you look into this, and and the piece uh, delves into this at at some length, is that there is this huge push right now in this country and a lot of uh, developed countries around the world, particularly in Europe, there are uh, those who will encourage Children, I mean, 12 year olds, a 12 year old is a child, encourage them to go forward with gender reassignment surgery or gender transition surgery. Now, I've said to you many times before that there's no such thing as a gender transition because it is, it is, this is a fact, and you don't have to be a doctor, you don't have to be, this is a fact like saying that, you know, up is up or water is wet. You cannot take a male. And turn a male into a female is biologically impossible. You also cannot alter the XXXY chromosomes that uh, predominate in a vast majority of human beings. Now, people have said, Buck, there are some chromosomal abnormalities. Aha! If chromosomal abnormalities are the basis for gender transition surgery, somebody is trans because of a genetic. Condition, well, then that's medically based, but that's not what we're talking about. With the vast majority of transgender individuals, it's a purely psychological condition for which there are no physical markers. So they will throw that out there that oh, it's not as simple, and and there are a few, and there are some medically very rare but real conditions where there'll be uh, there'll be the uh, genitalia of both. Uh, sex is present in, in, uh, in a, a newborn, and, you know, that's something that is true, but that's not the basis for the gender rights or transgender rights movement. It's psychological. It's a state of mind. It's a feeling. Based on a feeling, the trans rights activists want 12-year-olds to remove and, yes, destroy uh, their... Organs that are gender specific, so that they can become something else that they biologically are not and are incapable of becoming. And what you don't hear is that while they're pushing that, which I know you've probably heard about this before, in the context of how how young some of those who transition are, and and just the whole situation is is, a, is appalling. I mean, we've got a, a dr- the drinking age is twenty one, but you can start getting. You can choose in this country to start uh, taking hormone therapy and and beginning the gender reassignment process. I know that the surgery, sometimes they uh, will, uh, uh, medically, they'll, they'll put that off. But taking hormones, that can be irreversible. But they don't want to, on the medical side, and this is what this piece in The Federalist is about, is that they don't want to even look into cases of gender reassignment surgery reversal. Because the left offers up, this, uh, this promised land of gender transition to those who suffer from gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder, which is what it used to be called. Now it's gender dysphoria. The left makes it seem like if someone really truly believes that they should have this surgery, even if they are a preteen, by the way, uh, then that will fulfill them and make them happier. Now, there are already statistics about the suicide rates, Being very high among the transgender community, and there are any number of uh, different data points that one can look at and say, "Hold on a second, there's a problem here." But they don't even want to address the medical community, and this is from the Federalist piece. The medical community doesn't even want to address and do research on those who have transitioned, so to speak, and don't want to stay in that period of in that state of transition. They want to reverse the surgery and this is problematic for the whole narrative of the transgender rights movement for a couple reasons for one if the public were aware of just uh, how expensive painful medically risky uh, and just generally speaking uh, unnecessary and a bad idea gender transition surgeries are I think they would be much more opposed to them and, and certainly would look a little longer at whether or not our tax dollars should be going to fund those kinds of procedures because if they're covered under, you know, if the federal mandates and Obamacare, which is still in place by the way, if it covers them, well then guess what? You have a situation where people will be getting subsidized gender reassignment surgery. But even more than just all the risks and the downsides and and everything that goes into a gender reassignment surgery process if the state of mind that justifies in fact that necessitates according to the narrative on the left a gender reassignment surgery if that is changeable if somebody can go from hey you know I want to do gender reassignment surgery and then four years later you know what I really don't think this was a good idea I want to go back what does that say and I'm I'm just going to come out and talk to you honestly about this. What does that say about the seriousness with which we should take the narrative that people are born in the wrong bodies? If you can just change your mind, maybe we should think longer and harder before anyone ever gets encouraged to try and irreparably irreparably change and harm their bodies and, and this is what brings me full circle to my beginning point which is that the the left uh, and the progressives in this country start from the premise of they care they have empathy they are are taking it an emotion emotionally righteous position and so we should give them greater credibility they should have a greater say and the other side is full of mean bad people Well, if they really cared about folks who are transgender, if they really cared about the best outcomes and helping them and guiding them and not allowing people to throw away or destroy their lives, um, to live in crippling depression and with tremendous regret and infertility and many of the problems that come along with being transgender and, and going through the transgender surgery process... If, if the left was really about being considerate and kind and supportive and decent to transgender people, wouldn't they want the facts on those who go through this process that the left is holding up as a great idea? You know, that all these media types, that oh, this will solve your problems. And anyone who's opposed to this is a bigot. If they really cared about transgender individuals instead of Getting on everyone's case about using the right pronoun and engaging in the most petty and simplistic virtue signaling on this issue, wouldn't they want the data, the facts?